from Thee, our Father. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for coming to our aid when we were dead in trespasses and sins. We celebrate this morning, as Your people, the glorious gospel of grace. Father, we've been reminded this morning that we are in, we're in for something that uh, the human mind cannot imagine. We look forward to the day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth once again. Heavenly Father, we come now as a needy people. We have uh, physical needs among us. We have spiritual needs among us. We ask that you come to our aid. We pray that this might be the day that people run, run to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for those among us who are struggling with various needs. We pray that they might cast themselves upon you. And thank you, Father, for providing for us in ways this week that we could not have ever imagined. You are a faithful and good God. We pray that those among us who suffer with physical needs this week, we pray that you would minister to them and bring healing to their body. And Father, this morning, finally, we pray as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, together say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I don't know if you've ever been to a Ligonier conference, one of R.C. Sproul's conferences, but it's his custom uh, in his conference, usually on a Friday afternoon, he'll do a question and answer period. He'll have his panel seated on the stage, and the audience is given an opportunity to ask any question they like. It's not rehearsed. Anything they'd like to ask uh, to his panel. On one particular occasion, a man asked a question to Dr. Sproul. He, he stood up and asked him this question. Dr. Sproul, in your opinion... What's the greatest spiritual need among people today? Dr. Sproul paused and then he responded, I believe the greatest spiritual need among people today is that they might know the true nature of God. He continued, The fact is that most of the unchurched, most non-religious people do not really understand the God they're up against. If they did, they would call a truce. And the follow-up question was this, then in your opinion, Dr. Sproul, what's the greatest spiritual need among Christians today? Dr. Sproul shot back, the greatest need among Christians today is that they might know the true identity of God. For God is much bigger than we could ever imagine. And if we knew the true nature and character of God, it would completely change the Christian life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to hear from a couple this morning as we begin who at least in a small way has discovered that God is much bigger than they ever imagined. I want you to hear from Mike and his sweet wife, Mike Simmons. Come up here, guys. Can you get her? Now, many of you have prayed for the Simmons for many weeks, and I thought you'd like to put a name to a face. You may not know this sweet family, but... Um, they have uh, they've really gone under it for several weeks now. I, Mike, let me give you the mic and, and let me let you begin. Um, I don't know, was it maybe at the end of June that you, you uh, turned ill on us? It was uh, June the 6th. June the 6th? Yes, I went to uh, 
well, that week I thought I had the flu, and uh, I just uh, went to uh, work two hours on a Wednesday or a Tuesday, something like that, and then I just slept the rest of the week, and we went to, a, I was feeling pretty good, I went to a Chinese restaurant, which I'll never go again, <laughs> and uh, got just started getting deathly sick, and I told Marsha, let's go, and I think that was 6th of June, and the next thing I remember uh, is uh, July 6th or 7th, when I woke up from a coma. And Mike, what was the, uh, what's the di- was the diagnosis now? That- it was, uh, well, they run about 25 tests, and they narrowed it down to a guess of uh, encephalitis fever. Mm-hmm. I had spinal meningitis that developed into encephalitis. Mm-hmm. And I understand that the, the problem was that the encephalitis shut down the neurological system. So what, yeah. what does that mean to you as far as rehab? What, what are you, why are you in a wheelchair now? Well, uh, it did a lot of muscle damage to my lower, my legs. And I'm, I'm building up now. It, it, actually, I'm on a walker now, but any long distance, I, 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 you know, I'm building my endurance up. Mm-hmm. And I, can't, uh, I can walk about 100 feet now. Mm-hmm. Mike, what's, uh, what would you say? What have you learned here in this experience? Anything about God? Yes, uh, I depend on Him totally now. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys, I think our prayers for Mike... Certainly involves rehab. He's trying to learn to walk again. And uh, there was one part of this whole story that I wanted to share with you, and then I'm going to let Marcia say something because she's part of this story. But I would go check on uh, Mike sometimes a couple of times a week, and uh, I'd go up. He was in St. Francis Hospital, and sometimes I'd go up to the third floor in the ICU part where he was, and I'd walk out of the elevator, and I'd go straight to his room and pray over him. He never knew I was there. I, and talking with him later, he just never remembered any of those visits, of course, because he was in a coma. But one particular day I was there, I walked in the room, and it looked to me like it, this is the worst. It couldn't get any worse than this. In fact, I kept thinking, I wonder if the family's prepared for the worst here. And I prayed over Mike, went out to the waiting room, and found Marcia sitting there. Now, this, this lady has been amazing through this whole thing. Uh, Marcia, I want you to just tell us a, few, a little bit of what you've learned and what God has taught you through this. Well, I never had any doubt that he wouldn't come through. Um, we have a strong faith, and, and we had a, I could talk for a long, long time, which I know I don't have time, but uh, what doctors told us, and, and I knew uh, that was not right. We got so sick that we were in a coma, and we got pneumonia. We were on a respirator. One night he quit breathing. Uh, but I just knew that he was going to be fine. I needed him at least another 20, 30 years of my life. Uh, one thing that has meant a lot to me, and I don't even know that Mike knows this, um, the day that he actually went to intensive care that morning, he said, come here a minute, I want to pray. And I said, okay. And he grabbed my hand, and all he said was, he said, Lord, he said, I know you're busy, but would you take out a little time for me? Well, little did I know that one of my, this became my very favorite song, but I love the Gaithers, and one of Bill Gaithers on, on their tape, this is, this is the words after what Mike said that was my strength. The song goes like this. He's a busy God, but on his list of things to do, his number one priority is watching me and you. He's taking care of business, feeding birds and making rain, but he'll stop what he's doing when I speak his name. He's watching. He's watching me. He not only watched us, he performed a miracle. 
of, I mean, I've got one. The, the day that I left, uh, that particular day, I actually, Marcia encouraged me. I was a little bit discouraged, and she encouraged me that day in the hospital with her trust in the Lord. And I left there thinking, I've got to think bigger. I've got to think in bigger terms of who, who God really is. And uh, they ended up being an encouragement to, the, to me. Uh, how can we pray now as a church for you? As, uh, what, are, what are your needs right now? Well, we're we're trying to. We had to literally go from head to toe, learn to do everything over again. Uh, uh, very fortunately, our mental was there, and the Lord just took care of it the whole time. Uh, we started with our, you know, hands and went all the way down. Right now, we're going through physical therapy. Uh, it's it's a little bit hard, but we're fine. Uh, I've learned to maneuver that wheelchair with a little bit of a achy back. So, just pray that we will recover and be with us and give us strength. And y'all been doing it. Just continue to do that. Thank you. Guys, um, I, I think they know how many people have been praying for them already. Um, every week, those cards that you know you fill out and put in the offering plates, they're prayed over several times a week. People meet and pray over your needs. And the body of grace prayed for this couple for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and my encouragement to you is to continue to pray for the sinners. Thank you for your willingness to share. God bless you. Now, guys, if you'll look... If you'll look in Matthew chapter 6, I want to read, uh, we have time to read just a few verses, beginning in verse 31, Matthew 6, verse 31. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, most of you are familiar with this text, and you, you know that this particular scene here takes place in the early days of our Lord, our Lord Jesus' ministry. This, this particular part of Matthew is right in the middle of our Lord's great Sermon on the Mount. Now, it was Jesus' strategy as he began his public ministry in the region of Galilee to go into the synagogues of the cities and then in the, sometimes into the public squares and teach about the kingdom of heaven. Now, by this time, he had already called some of his disciples. We'll see that later in chapter 10, the, the disciples are named, uh, become called apostles. And it's here on this particular afternoon, apparently, because the text says so, that hundreds, maybe even thousands of people had gathered around to hear Jesus teach. So on that day, Jesus goes up on a hillside in Galilee, and he begins to teach of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's in this sermon that Jesus would use a term that had already become very controversial in his day. It's the term kingdom. Jesus would often say, the kingdom of heaven is like. If you look back at Matthew 5, verse 3, the beginning of the sermon, Jesus tells us that this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is to be an unusual kingdom. He begins the sermon in verse 3 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, are the broken, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a picture of extreme dependence. When a man or woman comes to the end of himself or herself and casts themselves up on the mercy of God, bringing nothing, no claims of righteousness. So it's a kingdom that is a picture of extreme dependence. And then later we would learn that in this kingdom, if you become my follower, if you become a part of this kingdom, you can expect severe persecution because the kingdoms of this are the kingdom, this kingdom, my kingdom, is often opposed to the kingdoms of this world. 
And then in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, here Jesus stuns the crowds when He makes this statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not certainly enter the kingdom. Now this statement, gang, alone actually leaves the people gasping for spiritual breath because they knew if anyone had the religious thing perfected, it was the Pharisees. And yet Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees or you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 5, verse 48, this is what I call the ultimate aim of his ethic. Where Jesus says in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then we come to chapter 6, where our text is taken today. And it's as if Jesus steps back and thinks, just in case there are those who still don't get it, here's what he does next. He contrasts, he contrasts the kingdom of this world or the religion of the Pharisees with the kingdom of heaven. And here's how he does it. In verse six, uh, in chapter six, he looks at the um, uh, the, the wealth of uh, the Pharisees and the wealth of those who have fine luxuries of life. And Jesus will contrast the the religion of the Pharisees with the kingdom of heaven. Now listen. Here's the fundamental principle of chapter 6. I think the key verse in chapter 6 is verse 21, where Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now guys, you know what a treasure is, don't you? A treasure would be a cherished possession. And Jesus talked some about treasures. In fact, in one of his parables, it was the parable of the hidden treasures, where a man one day goes out across the field and he stumbles upon a treasure hidden in the ground. And it's so valuable that this man goes home, sells all of his possessions so he can go and buy this land so that the treasure hidden in the ground will be his. So a treasure is more than simply a family heirloom. It's a cherished possession. It's something so valuable that a person would sell everything he has so he can purchase this treasure. Now what is the heart? Jesus says, where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart would be those deepest motives of our lives are those greatest desires we have. So Jesus is saying, in a sense, go find your treasure and there you'll find your heart. Now here I think we find the fundamental principle of the kingdom of heaven. It's found here in chapter 6. To these very religious people, Jesus is saying, and to us, if we have entrusted this thing we call Christianity with the intention of sharing the throne of our hearts with God and something else, whatever that something else might be, then we're making a pharisaical blunder. We're no different than the Pharisees. Why? Because that's the nature of the kingdom. True discipleship, Jesus would teach, is about the heart. Jesus demands our all or nothing. Lay everything aside, Jesus demands, and follow me. And then again, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, our text today, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Robert Bella, a sociologist from the um, University of California, Berkeley, wrote a book some time ago, I think maybe last year. It became a bestseller. The book was entitled Habits of the Heart. I want you to listen to something Bella says in his book. In this bestseller, he says, Most of the change in our life is the result of a shift 
in the notion of what will make us happy. Driven by what Bella calls a utilitarian calculus. That is, if it's useful to me, if it meets my needs. Driven by this utilitarian calculus, Bella says most Americans are simply consumed with their own self-interest. Even our deepest impulses of attachments to others are without any more solid foundation than our momentary desires. Now, if Bella's not familiar to you, if you don't trust Bella, are you familiar with a man by the name of Gary Smalley? Our own Gary Smalley, after years of research, has come to the conclusion that every human being possesses two fundamental needs in their life. That is, everyone in this room have two basic needs. One is the need of security. The other is the need of significance. Now, security would be those positive emotions that we all crave. Uh, I crave them. I find my positive emotions fundamentally in my family. That is, that Carla, Holly, and Brian love me in spite of who I am. I mean, the people that know me best still love me. Now, gang, that brings a, a great sense of security for me. And we all seek that kind of positive emotion, that kind of security. The other one is significance. That is, we all desire genuine fulfillment in life. That is, we all need to know that we belong, that we're making some significant contribution to our families, to our work, to our church, to our community, to the human race at large. Now, consequently, Smalley concludes, because of this, we spend a significant amount of our time looking for things we think can fill up our lives with positive qualities. So we're taught all of our lives to look to two things, to people and things, to fill up our lives with these positive qualities. Now, the problem with this is, as important as people are, as good as things can be, they were never intended to meet or to satisfy our most fundamental needs. My father, who is in his mid-70s now, retired seven or eight years ago, early last year, he uh, had gone running some errands and he had come home, pulled up in his driveway and stepped out of his car and remembers nothing after that. He blacked out, standing there at the doorway of the door of the car, fell on his face right on the edge of the concrete driveway. It just so happened that a neighbor, his next door neighbor, came out and happened to see my dad lying in a pool of blood. And uh, they got him to the hospital. And the, the doctors realized after looking at my dad that he must have completely blacked out because there were no evidences on his hands or arms that he tried to brace himself. And so his face caught the brunt of the impact. He cracked this bone right here in his cheek. He split his eyes, his face open his, above his eye, 30 or 40 stitches. I mean, he was a mess. My sister called me and said, Richard, I mean, it looks like somebody's taking a baseball bat to your dad, to dad. And I, I said, well, does mom have a bat in the house? You know, I don't know of any serious problems, but I'm joking. But um, what they discovered there in that process, and the doctors knew this, that those facial injuries were indicative of a far more serious problem. There had to be an internal problem going on with my dad to cause him to black out like that. So they did a lot of tests and discovered that my dad had an arrhythmia problem. And the solution was to install a pacemaker. So they put a pacemaker right up here in his chest. And the next day after he had that procedure done, I called him to check on him. And he was so excited about this pacemaker. I mean, it was, he was like a kid with a new toy. 
But this thing, he, he said, son, let me tell you how it works. Now, if my, it monitors my heart. If my heart gets off rhythm, it automatically you know, shocks the heart, gets things back on sequence. And besides that, he says, it's, I've got this device. I can hook my pacemaker up to the telephone, you know, dial the doctor, hook it up to the telephone, and the doctor can read a strip right over the telephone. I don't even have to go to the office. He can tell how my heart's doing. I mean, he was so excited. Now, my first question to my father was very pragmatic. I asked, Dad, how long does the battery last? Now, there was a long pause on the telephone. In fact, I thought maybe I upset him and the thing kicked in. But finally, he came back and he said, well, I never thought of that. I don't know the answer to that. Guys, now here's my point in that story. Just suppose that in each of us, there is a battery inside that needs daily charging to keep us alive and functioning well. Well, our culture teaches us that if we can plug into enough people and things long enough, that we can keep ourselves running well, feeling well, functioning well. But it has to be something new. It has to be something fresh. It has to be something novel to keep us going. And the problem is, somewhere along the way, and it comes at different points for different people, we come to the realization that life and things in and of themselves is not satisfying. In fact, life is often hard and exhausting. That's why in Hollywood, California, some of the most profitable businesses you'll find are not the boutiques, not the spas and the showroom floors, but the halfway houses and the 12-step programs. Because you can never hook up to enough people and things long enough to keep your battery charged to an acceptable level. Now, ladies and gentlemen, no one understood the hungers of the human heart better than Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught much about the kingdom of heaven. And I find it interesting that Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven often in the context of material possessions. And I've already alluded to this. Look in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Here in this section where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's in this section that Jesus shows us how our views of the non-essential things of life can be perverted. That is, the luxuries of life. Though our view of those things can become perverted. And then later in verse 25, on this section about worry, Jesus shows how our view of the essential things, the very basic needs of life, those things can get perverted. So the point is, we learn from Jesus that it's not, it's whether a man is as wealthy or poor or somewhere in between, their attitude toward material possessions is one of the most reliable marks of a man's spiritual condition. Now guys, by the way, Jesus is not teaching some new asceticism here that pits the spiritual against the material world. Because we are material or physical beings, because we live in a material world, we are naturally concerned about earthly things. The Bible teaches us that the earth and all that's in the earth is good. So there's nothing inherently evil about material things. On the other hand, we are spiritual beings. And those of us who are in Christ have been recreated for another world. A spiritual kingdom that's not made of hands. And one of the supreme tests is how we relate to these two kingdoms. And did you know there were 38 parables in the, New Test in the Gospels? I've alluded to one already, the parable of the hidden treasure. 
Of the 38 parables, 16 of those parables relate to material possessions. You can scan the New Testament, you'll find 500 verses on prayer, at least 500 verses on faith, and 2,000 verses on material possessions, particularly money. Now that helps us put into context verses 19 through 24 where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. So go find your treasure and there you'll find your heart. Then we come to verse 25 in this section about worry. And this is the section where Jesus talks about the very basic needs of life. Fundamental needs of life. Why why do you worry about those things? Again, Do you know why worry is a sin for the Christian? Well, it's a sin because worry is is an act of disobedience. The Scriptures tell us, command us to trust in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord. So worry is a sin because it's disobedience. But fundamentally, you know why worry is a sin? Because of our faith. Look, look in verse 32. This is an interesting part of this text. Here Jesus uses this phrase, Why do you worry like the pagans worry? They do that. Verse 32. If you look in the Greek New Testament, the word pagans is not there. It's the word Gentiles. And this is brilliance on our Lord's part. To this predominantly Jewish congregation, these Galilean Jews, Jesus says, Why do you worry like the Gentiles? That's how they live. Now, now get the scene here, guys. These are Galilean Jews. And if you, know your, if you look in the back of your Bible, your New Testament, you know, first century map, you'll see Galilee in the northern part of the kingdom, to the north. And Galilee is surrounded by Gentile nations, pagan nations. And Jesus says to these Galilean Jews, don't worry like these Gentiles worry. That's how they live. These, those are the guys who do not know your God, the God of the Old Testament. If anyone shouldn't worry, you should not worry. Because you know your God, the God of your fathers. The God that brought your people up out of Egypt. You know that God is a faithful God. That God is a covenant-keeping God. So why worry? By the way, we've already learned in our summer series this summer that the opposite of worry, remember is contentment. And contentment is rooted in the nature and the character of God. You know, I, I struggle with this thing, this thing of worry. You ask my wife. I worry sometimes when really nothing to worry about. I think worry, for me, is, is uh, often a control issue. You think so? Could it be true with you? We've got to have a little bit of control. I believe you, God, but let me worry a little bit. By the way, um, researchers tell us, and this is a fact, that whenever things go bad in the country, like the economy takes a nosedive, usually two things will happen, generally speaking. People will attend church more, and they'll buy more lottery tickets. (laughs) Now tell me if that's not, I mean, does that not affirm what I just said? We believe you, God, but just in case. Jesus says, don't worry like the pagans do. They have reason to worry, not us. And then verse 33, we come to this positive command here in this text. Now here it is. 
Here's really, I'm getting to the point of the sermon this morning. Here Jesus says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now my question this morning is, what does it mean? Think about this. What does it mean to seek first His kingdom? What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Well, I call it, I call it singleness of heart. Richard Foster in his book Celebration of Discipline calls it the discipline of simplicity. That is, with laser beam intensity, we're after this one thing, singleness of heart. Now the opposite, Foster says, of simplicity is duplicity. And that leads to complexity in life. And most of the complexities of life are the result of our own creation, our own doing. By the way, the great preacher of Ecclesiastes, you know what he says about this issue? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, God made man upright. Now, the Hebrew word there is straight. God made man straight. And I, when I read this text, I think about when I was a little boy growing up and my mom uh, used to send me on my, by my way of bicycle to the corner grocery store, the little knick-knack store not far from our house. Now, when I was little, we only had one car. Dad usually had it at work. It wasn't until my brothers and sisters became teenagers we got a second car, and they usually had that, so I still had to go to the knick-knack on the bicycle. Sometimes Mom would say, I want you to go to the knick-knack and get so-and-so, go straight there and come straight back. Now, I'd get on my bike and head off to the knick-knack, and all along the way there were these temptations. I knew so-and-so, and this is so-and-so's house, and this is where we play baseball, and this is where we climb in the storm drains here, and this is, this is the hills. Where... Always wanted to get off the beaten path. Make my life more complex. And believe me, if I didn't go straight there and straight back, my life was, would get complex. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God created us to be straight. But men, he says, have gone in search of many schemes. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of heaven? This one thing. Simplicity. Set our hearts on this one thing. Does it mean that we change careers so we can exert a better Christian influence? Not fundamentally. It means first we seek His kingdom. Does it mean we sell all our wealth and give it to the poor? Not fundamentally. First, are we kingdom seekers? Does it mean we quit our jobs and go to seminary, become full-time preachers? No. First, we seek His kingdom. Again, what I'm saying is, it's not so much something that we do. It's about who we, whose we are and who we are. And guys, we're some of the most pragmatic people in the world, evangelical Christians. I mean, I think sometimes the Spirit of God begins to teach us something and to lead us to greater spiritual depth. And the first thing we think of is, what do I need to do? What other activity do I need to get involved in? Sometimes it involves just being still and knowing that God is God. And we come to verse 30, the last part of verse 33, verse 33b. He says, and all these things will be added to you as well. Again, I don't pretend to understand this verse completely. I've preached on this text before. I've studied this chapter many, many times, and I still don't completely understand what this part of this verse means, and all these things will be added to you as well. Does it mean that if we truly are kingdom seekers, if we have singleness of heart, does it mean that 
all of our needs will be met, all of our fundamental basic needs are met, that even some luxuries are thrown in. Is this a prosperity gospel? I don't think so. I mean, history tells us that Christians, good people who love the Lord, are truly kingdom seekers, have suffered greatly in life. Some have done without the very basic fundamental needs. I don't know completely what this means, but I do know this much. I do know that God is much bigger than we could ever imagine. I mean, doesn't it make sense that the God who made us, the God who created us, knows best what we need? Now, you you can't miss this part of the story. Now, here's Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. Here's Jesus sitting on this hillside and before him are possibly thousands of men and women who have tremendous needs. Here looking into these faces is the Son of God who sees a people who are even oppressed by their religion. A religion that says, do, 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 try harder, do. Jesus looks into them, peers into their hearts, and the message that He brings to them that day is, it's done. Cast yourself upon Me. It's done. Toward the end of the summer, just a few weeks back, uh, my daughter, Holly, was uh, trying to get in one last trip for the, for the summer break. You, know, you have to do that one final thing. And, uh, it involved a weekend that our college and career were going to St. Louis on a little retreat. It just so happened that same weekend that our junior high were going up there to go to Six Flags and Holly had made plans to go with the college and career on this St. Louis trip. Then late that Thursday that they were to leave on a Friday, um, she was asked to be a counselor on the junior high trip to go with the junior high on their trip to help them. Well, in the process, she realizes, she agrees to do that, and in the process, she realizes that she had made a prior commitment on Friday morning, and they were to leave that Friday morning, she had made a commitment to another family in the church that she would promise to fulfill, and this made everything complex. So my daughter decides she's going to work all this out so she can get in everything she needs to get in. She figured out a way she can fulfill her obligation to these parents that she promised and get to St. Louis and to serve as a counselor with the junior high and still get to see the college and career. Isn't that just like a teenager? (laughs) Well, it gets really, really complicated and her mom finally throws her hands up and so I get involved because I've got to figure this out, work through it and see what we can work out. And uh, so Thursday night, I'm trying to deal with this issue. And Holly's at her friend's house talking to me on on the phone and we're talking back and forth and hanging up and calling back and I'm, oh dad, please let me do it. Now here's here's the solution she had. She figured out a way she could meet the obligation of these parents and then catch a ride with another friend in the church, another girl, and ride to St. Louis, two girls alone. Now, this is right in the middle of the Chandra Levy thing, and I've got all that going through my mind. They're going to ride to St. Louis alone, hook up with everybody there later in the day. That's her solution. Now, that's a problem for me, and I start trying to work through it that night, and guys... Well, my daughter, she's a sweet girl, hardly giving us any trouble at all, and you want to say yes. You just want to say yes. But I'm struggling with the issue, and so I'm on the phone talking about things and trying to figure it all out, and I call the, the parent of the other girl that they're supposed to, they're going to ride, she's going to ride with, and we talk about all the details, and I'm trying to get some comfort in this, and finally, late Friday, uh, Thursday night, I come to a decision 
The answer is going to be yes. I'm going to let her do it. But I don't tell her that right away. I kind of want to milk the thing along because I enjoy saying yes to my kids. I mean, what father doesn't enjoy saying yes? Finally, she calls back that night and I say, Holly, yes, I'm going to let you do it. And I'm telling you, I wish you could have heard her response. Oh, Dad, thank you. You know you can trust me and you won't regret this. Thank you, Dad. And I'm just lavish. I'm just lapping this up because I love to say yes to my kids. What father doesn't? Ladies and gentlemen, Christ, Christ is God's yes to us. Just suppose that my hand represents every need that you have. Physical, spiritual, emotional. Oh, the, the need for security and significance. Just suppose my hand represents all those needs. The gospel. The gospel would fit it like a glove. For in him we live. In him we move. And in Him we have our being. God is much bigger than we could ever imagine. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Our Father, I pray that at least in a small way we have discovered this morning that you are far bigger than we could have ever imagined. And fundamentally, you have met every need that we could ever have. For you alone know our greatest need. You knew that we were men and women born in sin, lost, dead, dead in trespasses and sins. And you found a way to take us out of our misery. We thank you this morning for your Son, Jesus Christ, who... By His humiliation and death, we have found life, freedom. Freedom from the bondages of a religion that says, do, do, do. For in Christ, it's been done. Our prayer this morning is that if there are those among us this day that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, maybe they're guilty of that pharisaical blunder, trying to do, trying to do. I pray that this might be the day they cast themselves upon the mercy of Christ. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.